0: Today, we are here to discuss the time travel episodes in Deep Space Nine. Woo! This is the third episode of our series, and I think it's been going well so far. What about you? I think it's been going swimmingly, and I am very happy that we are doing this series. It's such a fun one. All these episodes have been amazing. Cannot be any happier than I am. It's been interesting to see all the different types of time travel (laughs) that the writers come up with for these episodes, because I kind of went into this series thinking it would all be shot around the sun. I thought it would all be similar, but it's been very diverse. Yeah, I've been impressed by how differently the writers have been explaining the time travel or utilizing their technobabble to make it sound different and interesting every time. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Well, how are you doing this week, Rihanna? I'm doing all right, hanging in. I had such a blast watching these episodes that really I had a pretty great week. (laughs) Yeah, how about you, Ashlyn? Yeah, same. My husband, which I'm still not used to saying husband, um, <laughs> my husband just shipped out to basic training because he is joining the Air Force to play trumpet. Woo-hoo! <laughs> it's the most ridiculous job prerequisite of all time that you have to go to basic training to play trumpet for the Air Force. <laughs> yeah, a little wild. <laughs> but you know, that's how it is. So he just shipped out a couple days ago, so I'm gonna see him in about eight and a half weeks i'm gonna spend that time just watching star trek episodes and hanging out with you rihanna (laughs) sounds pretty great yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) so i think before we dive into a discussion about these episodes i am really curious rihanna if you could travel into the future to any episode of deep space nine which one would it be okay i've been thinking about this answer for deep space nine since we started this fun little beginning question And I would definitely travel to Trials and Tribulations so that I could watch dax and cisco watch kirk and spock that sounds so meta and hilarious and i could be sneaking around watching them and being like wow she's so much more prettier in person and then i'm like looking at dax and she's looking at spock and like we're both just like ooh (laughs) so i just think the irony of that would be really fun and it'd be fun to sneak around and watch them watch each other (laughs) yeah that's one that i almost said (laughs) yeah (laughs) I can't wait to literally talk about it more in an hour. Yeah, same. So what about you, Ashlyn? What episode would you travel to in Deep Space Nine? You might laugh at me, but I would travel to Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite. And I would join the team to beat the Vulcans. (laughs) Ashlyn, that is such a good answer. And you're also an amazing softball player. So you would actually be a really good asset to them. (laughs) Yeah, I think it would be really helpful. And I would love to be under Cisco as a coach, you know? (laughs) You, You think you wouldn't be mad that he'd be yelling at everyone to be better <laughs> i mean i'd be a little mad but also i really understand his rivalry with the vulcans because yeah. it's serious business totally i really like that hollow Sweet episode that's a really really good choice <laughs> i just love it <laughs> Listeners, you might hear a difference in the quality of this call because uh, we've been having the worst luck in the world with, with devices today. This is our fourth attempt to try to record the pod. We're stuck on Skype. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> we normally have a different audio stream that we record on. Nothing seems to be working today, so we're recording on Skype. So if you hear any difference in the beginning and. This part of the pod, that's why. Yeah, so thanks for hanging in with us. We really appreciate you. (laughs) We are committed to recording the podcast through thick and thin. So even if it's at a little bit of a lower quality, we hope you will still stick with us. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So we both know where we would time travel if given the chance. So I'm going to tell you what episodes we've watched to prepare for this time travel episode. We watched Past Tense, Part 1 and 2, Little Green Men, Ascension, Trials and Tribulations. It's actually Trials and Tribulations. (laughs) (laughs) Children of Time and Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night. Oof. Yeah, we got a nice little mix of of everything in this episode. Yeah, unfortunately, Deep Space Nine does not have an amazing movie that we can end the podcast with this week. And so we are not quite going to go in order because it would be so insanely depressing. If we ended this whole podcast talking about wrongs darker than day or night or whatever it's called, aka yeah. traumatic episode you've ever seen. Yeah. And we've <laughs> already had to watch it once for our family series. So we did not want to have to put you through that at the end of the pod. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have even watched it in that order because it's so depressing to end on. Yeah. So We're going to have a little bit of a different flow instead of going by order of episode release we are going to go kind of more by theme so Mm -hmm. the first episode we're going to talk about is the children of time and rihanna can you give us a little synopsis about what this one's about i would love to so this is your good old fashion the crew is just coming home from a mission on the defiant and we have all the key players here on this mission And Dax sees a very interesting anomaly-type thing on this planet. No, it's not an anomaly. I don't know what it is. It's like a... It's a barrier, an energy barrier around the planet. Energy, Yeah, an energy barrier. Thank you, Ashlyn. And she is like, hey, guys, let's go check this out. This is really interesting. And they're all like, we just want to go home. And she's like, please. And then they're like, okay, fine. She's like, for science, there's a colony down there, and this is the only time we'd be able to contact them. So let's go see what they're all about. Out. Turns out that this is a colony full of relatives of themselves because the Defiant had accidentally traveled back 200 years into the past And they had to pretty much colonize this planet and make a life from themselves. So they are meeting people who are their, like, great, 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 great grandchildren. So there's O'Brien's there. And, of course, there is a host, Dax, whose name is now Yedrin. So it's just kind of wild because Yedrin has all of the true information from Jadzia. And, of course, he knows Cisco and everyone. So it kind of reminded me of one that we probably won't talk about for Enterprise, but... One that we did talk about previously in our family. Family. Oh, yeah, because oh, they are family. family. Oh, I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> These are way similar premise to an, an Enterprise episode, so I thought that was kind of interesting. That that's maybe where Enterprise got the idea was from this really fascinating Deep Space Nine episode. What I found very enticing about this episode is to meet the colonists and to see how they had made their lives out of this horrible thing that happened because they couldn't find a way to get back to their time. And so literally it took O'Brien like 20 years to get over the fact that he would never see Keiko or Molly again, or I think Hiroshi's even born at that time. So yeah, it's just tough. And we see the result of all these kids and they're all named Molly or there's a whole group of Klingons who were built after the Son of a Moog. And So it's just, it's really a neat colony, but it's also interesting to see what they built out of this tragedy. Absolutely. I was just going to mention that the episode we're talking about for Enterprise is called E-Squared. So if you haven't seen that one, you should watch it. It's insanely similar to this one. I just feel like... As much as we are excited as a species to begin time traveling and expanding our civilization, I'm a little worried about the frequency at which these characters meet their great 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 grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> Way more often than should be normal. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that it happens twice is it's really a Too lot to times. process. And I mean, I'm just going to spoil it now. The result of this is that these grandchildren are erased from yeah. time. Eight thousand <laughs> colonists are completely erased because Odo has a crush on Kira. I'm sorry, that is just crazy. Oh, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Because yeah, Sarah died back in the 200 years timeline so it's just kind of insane though that this is the result of this and so they have this beautiful scene where they think it's going to be their last day on Earth because uh, Deep <laughs> Space <Earth>. Nine <laughs> uh-huh. on that planet Yeah, <laughs> oh, thank you but uh, it's this beautiful scene where they are like, we're going to still plant for the harvest and do what we would have normally done to sort of create and build this future, but they, the adults at least know that they're not going to exist by sundown, which is crazy and horribly tragic, but Deep Space Nine's crew, the, the Defiant, decide oh, we need to make this sacrifice for them, and they are completely willing and committed to do this, even though Kira is going to die and even though they're never going to see their loved ones again on Deep Space Nine, they we know that it's the right thing to do so that these colonists can live and not be literally erased from time. But Odo, who's a bunch of years old now, <laughs> still in love with Kira after all these years, and he gets them off course and makes sure that they don't go back in time, which is very tragic that that is the way that this happened because I definitely thought it was Yedrin's choice, Yedrin Dax, who made that choice, but it was old Odo. Ah, oh, this episode like so many deep space nine episodes is a lot to unpack because this show never pulls its punches. It is always forcing you to think about deep moral problems. The question that the crew is facing for the whole episode is, do we break this loop? or do we let this time loop continue on? Just to track the quote-unquote science of this episode, (laughs) there's no explanation given about how the ship is sent back into time, except that it has something to do with the energy field around the planet, and there's some chroniton radiation. There's a surge of it, O'Brien says, and that's (laughs) part of what zaps Kira, then somehow when the ship hit the barrier, it ricocheted and sent it 200 years in the past. The descendants of the Defiant clearly have known for a long time that at some point they are going to meet back up with the original crew of the Defiant. And so there must have been a plan or a thought about what do we do when that time comes? Because much like E-squared in Enterprise, their existence relies upon the fact that this crew crash lands on this planet and this is the first iteration of this happening so i can't help but think just that this model is unsustainable because that means even if the crew decides once again you're right we can't kill eight thousand people let's crash land again and keep this cycle going mm-hmm. that means that the next time around will they make the same decision Right. I don't know. But it also ensures the current colonists continue living on this planet. And who knows? They've done a great job in the past 200 years of creating a a city with a good infrastructure. And it seems like there's not a lot of conflict on the planet. It reminded me a little bit of the culture in the inner light episode in Next Generation, where everyone is working hard and it's all about the community. It seems like there's not a lot of strife. It's just a lot of peace. And, I mean, I would expect nothing less from the descendants of a Federation ship because Starfleet has the best and brightest. And, of course, they were resourceful enough to create this and make it happen. There is something not sustainable about this, and I wonder what would happen if Odo had not changed the flight plan of the Defiant. They had indeed crashed the current colonists living in the correct Deep Space Nine time kept going what would happen round two i just don't know or would it be a fixed point oh uh. yeah ashlyn <laughs> i i know this is the thing that really ugh yeah um deep space nine it really does stick us into these moral quandaries a lot don't they <laughs> yeah, man this crew is always having to face these really tough decisions and i think that their choice to sacrifice their current lives for these lives of the colonists was really admirable and absolutely something that i'm surprised frankly that it took them so long to decide this because i mean not surprised i still understand like you have your life you have a station to run you have children and family that you're leaving behind. It was interesting that a lot of the quandary that Kira was facing was on the fact that this was her destiny. She felt as though she was predestined to have died on that planet, but also have all of these people live, you know, because she was feeling like if they went back, it would be just to save her or she would be a huge factor of why they wouldn't go back to save these colonists. And I found that her struggle was really interesting because she does focus around her faith and the prophets and what is intended of her. And she said, I always thought that the prophets were guiding me to a certain place in life. And so to know that I am standing here praying at my own grave is very discombobulating and very disorienting, because that would be, especially if you're a person who follows a certain religion, because then it completely shatters everything you know about death and your life and where you're, quote unquote, supposed to be. And so I just found her decision really admirable to be like, I don't care if I die here as long as these colonists continue to exist. and. I really expect nothing less of the incredible Kira Norris. It's quite a disheartening ending and something I didn't expect. I thought they would pull out of the hat a crazy scientific solution at the last minute that would end up having them be able to return to Deep Space Nine, but also save the colonists. But no, they're just gone. Yeah, I was honestly surprised by their decision. And I was really feeling for Cisco during this episode because he's the captain, obviously. He's the one in charge of the lives of his crew, but... This is a decision that's beyond him. When you join Starfleet, you know that basically Starfleet owns you and you have to do whatever they say. But I feel like it's too much power to decide the destiny, as Kira keeps saying, of the rest of the crew. And so I felt really bad for him having to make that decision for 49 people. And I really felt for Kira, too. As someone who is not particularly religious, but I'm pretty spiritual, I would also grapple and have a really tough time with this because seeing your own grave is definitely a weird thing. And I can't help but wonder what happiness that Dax and Worf found – On this planet, we know that they got married. We know that they get married later in the show, but then we know that Dax dies. And so Mm -hmm. Worf was in this alternate timeline on the planet. He got a lot more time than Dax than he ever got on the show. So that's something he doesn't know yet that he's giving up. But it is really interesting to think about the consequences of this. I was kind of team don't. Repeat the loop, get the F out of there, and go back to DS9. And I didn't remember how this episode ended, so I too was really surprised that Cisco did end up changing his mind and they were gonna just complete the loop. What were your thoughts about this, Rihanna? What decision would you have made in this position? Well, I thought that O'Brien was very candid in this episode, almost brutally so. I didn't want to agree with, but also was thinking he said at one point, frankly, I don't care what happens to these people. I don't know them. He's like, but I know that I would be leaving Keiko and Molly and Hiroshi behind. And I know that I'd be leaving my life behind. And it's Kira who makes the argument, though, that I thought was very important, where O'Brien, who says, what about our future that could have happened on Deep Space Nine if we end up going back in time? Kira says they don't exist yet. These people do. And that's fundamentally what I agree with, is that we can't use that as the sake of argument is what about my future self? What about these people who have yet to be born? No, They're not born yet. So like, why are we making this argument when we're talking about real lives at stake in this moment, you know? And so I think that, yes, it's an important argument to some extent to say, think about your future because like, obviously, yeah, for something like climate change, we do have to think about our children or our grandchildren who are going to suffer the consequences of what we do right now to our planet. But in this circumstance, we're talking about erasing 8,000 people from existence just from one choice. And so, of course, it's a horrible choice to make. But as a viewer, I, of course, didn't want him to go back in time because I want him to go back to the station and everything to be back to quote unquote normal. But as Cisco, I definitely, I think, would have made the choice to go back in time and continue this loop because I don't think I could even, from a selfish standpoint, live with that on my shoulders every day. And Cisco is already living with so much on his shoulders, but also he has the pressure of being the emissary, so he'd be leaving behind that role. He also has the pressure of the war against the Dominion, and so he also has to think about that and think about where would the leadership go if all of these senior officers were gone? Would it just fall into Cardassia's hands, you know, or into the Dominion's hands? Yeah, and I think it's interesting too because we will never know that future that happens on DS9 when they never return. I mean, we can imagine that they're cited as missing in action, but it would be a real blow to the station to Mm -hmm. lose all of their senior officers in one foul swoop. All of the family and friends left on the station, gone. Poor Quark. His love of his life, Odo, is gone. (laughs) (laughs) It would be a blow. So it was interesting to watch this episode without even thinking about those consequences. Oof. I really like this. And I was actually wondering, because we also watched Ascension, which is a very profit-heavy episode. I was wondering if the prophets would have intervened if Cisco had made the decision to go back in time and formally complete this loop, because I know they have plans for him. And I don't think they would want their precious emissary stuck back in time. It seemed like they didn't care the first time, but I don't know. I feel like the formalization of that loop might have prevented them from even being able to repeat the past. Yeah. Yeah. So Ashlyn, I think this is an important point and something that maybe we can figure out through the episode Ascension, because like you said, it's very prophet heavy because this poet comes back who was gone. He left in 9174. And that's over 200 years ago is what they told us. This poet, Bajoran poet, was healed by the prophets. He essentially discovered them. But of course, the prophets do not understand linear timelines. When they sent him out of the wormhole, they unintentionally sent him into the future where he missed the entirety of the Cardassian occupation of Bajor. He missed so much. There are old cultures and rituals that are just completely gone now. And in this episode, we see Sisko relieved that he gets to pass the mantle of Emissary onto this Bajoran poet. The thing that I found interesting was that the prophets didn't intervene. Came to him once in a vision and Bashir said it was a hallucination associated with being around the orbs, I guess. And that just happens. But the only time when they truly were able to talk to him and intervene and tell him that he is the Cisco and he is the emissary was when they went into the wormhole to directly discuss with them. Because when they find time to intervene, it does feel inconsistent of when they want to make sure Cisco's on track, make sure that Cisco doesn't marry Cassidy. It's bizarre. You're absolutely right to think, why didn't they stop him from going back in time in Children of Time? So what do you think their motivations are, if they have any? Well, in Ascension, the poet asks... Why was I sent to Bajor so much later than when I left? Like, why did you keep me here? And the prophets say for the Cisco. And so I think they were purposefully not intervening because Cisco had to learn his lesson that he actually does care about his role as the emissary. And when you see someone else doing it in a terrible way, he was just feeling a lot of regrets. This poet was implementing ancient, (laughs) seemingly system of work, basically. It's kind of classist. (laughs) Oh, it's absolutely classist. It's like a caste system, caste Mm -hmm. that we used to have on Earth where you are sorted depending on your family's job, and then you're treated depending on whatever your job is. So like the artists, which is Kira's, Kira's would live in the city, and her whole family would all be required to be artists. And then someone else, for example, like Shakar, who's the minister of Bejor, he would have to quit and become a farmer because that's what his Jahar is. It's insanely oppressive, and returning to that way is not good. And the prophets mm-hmm. know that, and so I think in Ascension, it's a specific example because they were trying to teach Cisco a lesson. But I also kind of got the vibe from the Prophets that they weren't watching super closely about day-to-day details going on yeah. on Peixor. <laughs> it's a funny scene when they're in the wormhole with the Prophets because they're all looking at each other and they're like, they are linear. They don't get it, basically. <laughs> they were having a really hard time connecting with Cisco and the poet guy children of time i more firmly believe that cisco would not have been allowed to come back in time to seal the loop because then they would have been forever caught in the loop and beijer would have been without an emissary for the future and i just had a brain blast that probably because they're non-linear they already know that odo is always going to save them and always going to knock them off course. And so they know that there's no need to interfere because Odo is that factor that will always save Kira. See, isn't that interesting? That is a great point, Rihanna. And I can begin to understand their perspective because in this whole episode, Children of Time, and with our characters, what is constant? What's something that no matter any iteration of a character or any timeline or any universe that you're in, Odo's going to love Kira. That's just how it goes. And so people are always going to find their way back to the people that they love. It's interesting that that is the driving force that's going to change these timelines. Ascension is a disturbing episode because of how quickly Bejor begins to transform and how blindly they accept the emissary's words. Once this poet is doling out lists of things to do, people are just doing it. And Kira is so devoted that she resigns from DS9. And she says, I'm going to leave and go move to the city to become an artist. And I think that's crazy, but I also respect it. You know, Mm -hmm. she's someone who is so so devoted to her faith. I mean, she knows her gods are real, so I can't really batter her. And even if it was someone who's of really devout faith, if it was like a religion that we have on earth, some people are like that. You follow the path that you think is laid out for you and you go for it. So Mm -hmm. I am really impressed with Kira's devotion in that, but I think it's very sad that she would have to give up her post because she's a major. She's a very high-ranking officer. This just reminds me that so much changes in a century, two centuries or three or however long he's been gone, that we can't keep clinging to these things that happened 200, 300 years ago, it's completely against all logic and against the system of society that we are building now. And cough, cough, we have to let go of some systems here on Earth as well that are just ancient and out of touch. And I think that this is a good reminder of this and something I love so much about Deep Space Nine is they're constantly reminding us that things are changing and we have to change along with them. And sometimes that change can be good, and I'm really glad that Cisco recognized so quickly it may be a burden to be an emissary, but it's also his burden and something that he would rather be in charge of than to see Bajor go to shambles in this way where it's becoming a classist, bigoted society. Just don't want that it's not not great. no, you um, don't. I couldn't help but think, what would be the equivalent for us as a society? And Rhiannon and I are based in the United States, so I'm thinking, what if someone like Benjamin Franklin came back a previous president George Washington or someone who was so important in our history even Lincoln if Lincoln was here today what would he think would he agree with a lot of the policies that we're doing would he try to go back I have no idea following this line of thinking was taking me to kind of a scary place because there are still so many people who really believe in following the ways of our founding fathers and the constitution like to the letter if one of them were to return and tell us oh you've been doing all this wrong you've been interpreting this all wrong people would go crazy i've never thought about that before so ds9 wow we're we're really challenging ourselves with these time travel episodes absolutely and particularly could you imagine a pope from 300 years ago coming back and then telling people how to be a certain way in religion and completely changing catholicism to how it was 300 years ago Sounds awful. (laughs) I'm just going to say that, you know, so it's that kind of equivalent. And I think absolutely you're right. It's such a good thing to discuss. One more thing I wanted to talk about with this episode that I found fascinating was that Kira remembers both the old timeline of the poem that was incompleted and then The current timeline of when it was completed because the prophet sent him back to his own time to be with his family and he was able to finish a lot of his unfinished works. And first of all, I think about if I knew Kubla Khan, the version I know, which is a fragment. And then if one day... I just found more of Kubla Khan. For the noobs at home, remind me which... I know the story. That's the guy who was like really high on opium. And then someone knocked on his door and he forgot what he was going to write and just like chilled and didn't finish the poem. What poem is that? Um, Kubla Khan, A Vision and a Dream. It's Samuel Taylor Coleridge. The person from Porlock knocked on his door and it was like, hey, dude, we're going out for a drink. I don't know what the person (laughs) from Porlock was doing. They probably wanted to get more opium. He was so in that frenzy of writing that... That when the person from Porlock knocked on his door, he just completely, it all went away and he was like, well, I guess I'll just publish this as a fragment. So, if someone took away that person from Porlock from time and had Coleridge finish that poem, it would have completely altered the ways in which we think about literature and stuff. And so, this is a very famous Bajoran poet. And so, it's really crazy that Kira still retains the memories of the unfinished poem versus the finished one. It's just bizarre because she asked Cisco about this. She's like, why did this happen? And Cisco just says, the Prophets work in mysterious ways. That's essentially Cisco being like, I have no effing clue. (laughs) That's also the writer saying, we don't want to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks for bringing this up, because there's no rhyme or reason to it. I'm with Cisco, the prophets work in mysterious ways. An explanation in my mind could make sense that somehow they're able to do both. Get mm-hmm. this guy back in time and he has no memories of his time on Deep Space Nine and the people in Deep Space Nine remember him. It reminded me of yesteryear when Spock suddenly doesn't exist but Kirk but remembers Kirk him. Remembers. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> My good <Totally>. friend Spock. <sighs> oh. Well, keeping with the Kira theme, I think we should briefly talk about wrongs darker than day or night. I keep I think saying it's the- death or night. Yeah, yeah I don't know why. Sadder. I, I keep saying the wrong <laughs> title. Yeah, so I think let's just briefly talk about that because this is just the first of many instances that the prophets use their orb of time as a plot point to get characters into different parts of time. At the end of the episode, we're going to talk about trials and tribulations, and that's the origin of the Time Stone. On Flash Letters. Tribulations. Oh, Rihanna is on my it. about the Tribulations. Okay, well, and yeah, my head is just thinking about Avengers right now. It's not the Time Stone, the Time Orb, but similar concept. It's, it's still round, and it's full of time. So. Yeah, in this episode, at this point, it's just chilling on the station, and there's a room you can go into, and you can, I guess, be sent back in time. Okay. <laughs> um, questions about this. Do you think that the Prophets allow it, so she has to, like, pray to see if it happen or do you think that anyone could just go in there and disrupt time and going off and the temporal agencies always come in here to <laughs> check why it's so many time violations my hope but i don't really believe it because so so my hope is that the prophets you have to like go through a pre-screening with them first <laughs> where maybe the prayer they like analyze it and they're like oh she wants justice she wants to like kira in this case wants to know about the tr- the real story of her mom and why Golducott knows her that's super disturbing and Golducott is claiming to have been a lover of her mother which is a, a rhyme I never wanted to say Ooh, uh, yeah <laughs> when it comes to Golducott no, uh, no way I think Kira is so desperate to know exactly the real story because she doesn't want to trust Ducott and so I think that the prophets said, OK, this is a justifiable reason to want to see the past. ya, take it. <laughs> and I just hope that they do a pre-screening because otherwise, what? I mean, it could come back here and change it all. So, yeah, yeah, it's very questionable. How many people know about this time orb? Is it like a secret? It seems like it's just in the temple. I don't know. It's a little yeah dicey. I also wonder if once she goes back into time and she's interacting with her family, her little self, Gold Dukat, her mom, all the Cardassians, I'm wondering if the prophets created it so it's kind of like a safe space? Yeah, where, like a bubble. <laughs> yeah, like a, a bubble where Kira is interacting with all these people, but it's not going to have an effect on the future. Like if she... God forbid, murdered someone who was supposed to survive, maybe he wouldn't actually die. Like, the prophets would save him and continue with the time stream. Because I just wonder if Gold who caught after this episode's over, if he suddenly, boom, now has memories of meeting someone who looks exactly like Kira back during the occupation. And yeah. we never know that. And so that's why I kind of assume... That the prophets create this space where it's kind of like a holodeck where <laughs> you can go back in time and interact with everyone and you still get your catharticism out <laughs> and you get to see the past, but you don't actually change the past. I don't know. What do you I think? I don't know. I mean, I wish that were true, but I don't think it is depending on trials and tribulations, but we'll get yeah. to that one. Yeah. That kind of distra- It destroys your amazing theory that I want to be true. If I were the writers, I would have ended this episode with gold Dukat having another transmission with Kira saying, hello there, Lamia or whatever her name is just to like throw that in. Like, oh. Hey, now I know what you did. Yeah. Wouldn't that be just horrible and also kind of crazy? And it would also give us more explanation of like if it was impacting the future, if it impacted what their life is like today. And obviously things would have very much changed if Kira had decided to blow up Golduka and her mother. I don't know if it would have been for the better, for worse, but it would have created a catastrophic timeline change. Well, and that is not even brought up. Kira doesn't think about it for one minute. (laughs) She does not sweat over this, the fact that she almost killed Kuldukat in the past understandably he's an awful person she has such horrible heavy baggage with him and such trauma that comes directly from golducat even current trauma because she has to deal with him like every day and it's awful and so she's continuously being traumatized by this and so yeah i wouldn't really care if i blew up golducat but also i would care for like my future and the future of everything because it would be just completely different because he was such a huge key player in the future that Kira knows and the present that Kira knows. And so I did find that to be a little disturbing how she just does not care. She joins a resistance cell. She is ready. She just falls back into these ways because I think honestly being back in that time, it would sort of, I think for me, I would feel really displaced and very out of body and disassociative because you're back in this horrible moment of occupation and a massive key point moment of your trauma and of a whole generation of trauma of course she would want to do something to change that i can't blame her but i'm also terrified of cisco just being like sure go ahead run around go figure out what happened to your mom during the occupation kira is Definitely a war criminal, justifiably for the most part, but she's still a war criminal and she did a lot of things that weren't great and also sort of the Cardassians, you know, blah, blah, blah. This situation isn't black and white and this is what Kira learns in this episode. But anyway, it seems a little negligent on the prophet's part, on Cisco's part, on Kira's part. The whole thing is kind of wild, but yeah, Ashlyn, I do, I do wish there was just a bubble <laughs> that would protect Kira from not making anything change. Maybe again, it's the thing where like, oh, they've seen every, they've seen, the future so they know kira didn't end up killing him but that seems again kind of like a cop-out excuse i don't know what do you think ashlyn i think the prophets work mysterious ways rihanna (laughs) (laughs) i think that the prophets pick and choose what results they want to happen every time and for whatever board and they're like "Hmm, sure let's see how this rolls (laughs) what's going on in that void is there anything I don't know everything and nothing at once. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, another moral quandary. But I am glad ultimately that Kira didn't blow up her mom, <laughs> which is not, and again, not a sentence I ever wanted to say. But yeah, me neither. I, it's also funny because this is season six, so this is towards the end of the show, and at this point the. Temporal agencies already been to DS9 a couple times, and so it is really surprising that Cisco's not like, hey there, you know. Yeah, <laughs> like, hold up. We need some ground rules. Yeah. <laughs> also, it would be really funny if the Prophets had the ability to create this holodeck experience, because then they wouldn't have done it for Trials and Tribulations just to be a little douchey, you know, just to be like, ha ha, you guys figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, Well, I do have some more theories about that. But before we move on to Trials and Tribulations, we have a couple more episodes to discuss beforehand. So let's do a big shift and jump into Past Tense Part 1 and 2. I would love to. Ashlyn, these episodes, these two parts, are some of the best work that Deep Space Nine has done. And I know I say this with a grain of salt because I talk about a lot of the best parts of Deep Space Nine because Deep Space Nine is one of my very favorite Star Trek shows. And so I tend to hold a lot of its episodes at a higher regard in general. But I got to say that the way that this was done and the closer we get to 2024, the more I resonate with it. I watched these two parts, I'd say probably every like two years just to sort of like check in <laughs> to see, are we going to have sanctuaries. Soon. Is Gabriel Bell coming? Questions that are sort of lingering in the back of my mind. How predictive is Star Trek really? Because we've seen Star Trek be very predictive in the past with the original series, with a lot of things. Also very um, unpredictive with the, oh, good- for the sure. 90s. I mean, I remember Khan rising up and taking over the world. That was some good times. <laughs> yeah, like, didn't you remember World War Three happened? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, obviously it's a show and like, I understand that this is not going to happen in the way that it does, but I do find the episodes in which they talk about our more current future to be fascinating because some of it they get so spot on and some of it is just hilarious when did the show come out deep space nine 90s because whatever computer dax was using (laughs) was like so funny yeah 1993 was the first episode okay so okay we're like smack dab in the middle of the 90s and this the technology that they predicted for 2024 looked like 90s computers yeah you know so I do find that to be funny because it's hard to predict because technology advances so quickly it's hard to predict at which rate things are going to happen but yeah I just wanted to preface this by saying if you guys feel like watching past tense every couple years I feel like it's always relevant and in different ways it hits home for me yeah Ashlyn would you like to tell our our listeners what this two-parter is about and what you felt about it oh geez I would love to So the crew of the Defiant is traveling back to Earth for like a conference. Do you remember why they're going to Earth? Yeah, they're going for a conference. They're meeting up with admirals for dinner. They've got a lot of plans. No one wants to go. Cisco so has to go visit his sister, which I straight forgot he had a sister and we yeah. did not talk about in our family series. Whoops. He never showed up again. I don't really think well. we Eventually. ever. Yeah. <laughs> so, man, I mean, like, who's taking care of his dad? Why isn't it his sister in Portland? Literally. Um, I don't know. But <laughs> apparently when they get close to Earth, there is a power flux in the confinement beam. And O'Brien's really confused by it. And Bashir, Dax, and Cisco are beaming down to Starfleet Command when they never actually appear there. The beam sends them back in time to the year 2024 Dax is separated from Cisco and Bashir none of them have IDs on them or any kind of information and Bashir and Cisco are picked up by not police but enforcers I guess of this rule that anyone who doesn't have an ID or money has to go to a sanctuary city and uh sanctuary or sanctuary uh, district uh, yeah has to go to a sh- sanctuary district which sounds kind of nice but once they get there They are processed, honestly reminded me of like a DMV (laughs) (laughs) or just any kind of government building you have Mm -hmm. to go through. It's always painful. It's always awful. It always takes longer than you think it will. And you're never happy during the process. And that's how it felt watching Cisco and Bashir going through this. It was just terrible. Dax, on the other hand, she is found by a really wealthy, rich guy who's... I think kind of like the Bill Gates or I don't know, another big tech guy, maybe Jeff Bezos (laughs) or Elon Musk today, like someone who's really, really famous for their technology And kind of a (laughs) a-hole. Exactly. Rich, just any kind of rich white guy. She is lucky enough to get taken to his building and she can create her own ID and all this stuff. But, uh, Cisco realizes that the bell riots are about to happen and the bell riots is a time where all the people inside the sanctuary rise up and basically show the world that these sanctuaries are messed up and these people should not be all locked up together. There's a distinction between the gimmies, which is slang for people who are intelligent and smart, but just for whatever reason can't find a job. Maybe they were Mm let go from somewhere because of something maybe like a pandemic happening. Yeah, (laughs) who's to say? (laughs) their job because of something beyond the control. And then there's the DIMs, who are people who have mental health issues, who can't get a job or participate in society because of their health. And so these people are locked up in these sanctuaries and these exist in every major city in the United States. This apparently is a turning point for the United States. Cisco is explaining all of this in the episode that because of this riot, because of the Bell riots, this is where real change actually happens. And the government shuts down the sanctuaries. And actually start spending money on mental health and starts basically fixing all of the social problems that the United States has faced. And I thought it was funny that Cisco kept saying social problems because that's such a nice way of putting it rather than white supremacy or yeah. Classist capitalism, this is a really, really heavy episode, a really fantastic episode. And honestly, it was kind of hard for me to watch because I am not like you, Ryan. I'm not vigilant with my rewatching of this. I think I've probably only seen it two or three times. It really hit home for me for this watching, especially because both Rhianna and I have lived in San Francisco for four years and there's a district called the Tenderloin that is filled with homeless people. And a, a lot of the homeless people have a lot of mental health issues because <laughs> uh, Reagan re- mm. like he defunded all of the mental health facilities in California. And so everyone was just pushed out on the street. In streets. Nevada as well. And they were shipped to California yeah. essentially. And so it's essentially becoming an epidemic, the um, homeless, mentally ill population in San Francisco. And really quick to interject, I thought that what Bashir said was really beautiful in this episode when he talks about why don't instead of putting people who are mentally ill in a district and just pretending like they don't exist, why don't you get them some medicine that can help them be functional in society? And I believe Cisco says something like, oh, well, Maybe he's trying to sort of defend this time saying they probably don't have the resources or the medicine. And Bashir argues back and says, no, they absolutely do, even in this time period, have the medicine that can, but they just don't have it readily available for people and for the people who truly need it. I thought that was just such a really important thing to remember is, yeah, we still have medicine that we can help to distribute to people who need it. And he also says something else I found to be really important causing people to suffer because you hate them is terrible, but causing people to suffer because you have forgotten how to care. That's really hard to understand is what Bashir says. And I think that that is, A lot of essentially what's going on in San Francisco right now and what's going on with homeless populations throughout this country, throughout the world. We see a lot of the guards who pick up Cisco and Bashir say, you can't sleep here. There's laws against sleeping on the streets. And I remember back in 2016 or something, Denver was releasing these laws against quote unquote urban camping, which was literally just to attack the homeless population living in Denver. And so they really did a good job of highlighting the problems and showing that, like, this is where we will continue to spiral to if we don't work on ourselves and work on helping people around us. It's particularly people uh, suffering with mental illnesses who have no base of support. I mean, they talked about, too, the sanctuary cities are not for criminals. They're not for people who have committed crimes or have done something terrible. They're literally people who don't have jobs and are unable to be, quote unquote, a functional member of society. And so then they're just hidden away by the rest of the world, essentially. And what is really disturbing for me to see is because I When I lived in San Francisco, I lived on Market Street, which is the iconic main street in downtown San Francisco. There were a lot of homeless people around there, but they were just doing their thing and hanging out. And I never minded it too much because it was a short walk from school. I lived about one minute away from my school in the dorms. And the longer I lived there, the homeless people were getting pushed out. And Mm. there were a lot of initiatives To And a lot of stuff enforced by the police to move the homeless to the Tenderloin District. And this is this is scary. This is similar to what we see in this episode. In fact, uh, it was the worst thing happened when the Super Bowl was hosted in San Francisco, which is funny because There's no football stadium in San Francisco proper in like the Mm -hmm. actual county of San Francisco. It's about an hour south. But because there were going to be film crews from the NFL in San Francisco, there were no homeless people that entire week that those film crews were there. It was eerie because they had moved all of them. They were Mm -hmm. literally picking them up on buses and moving them to different parts of the city so they wouldn't be shown It was horrific and scary to see because these people have no control over what's happening in their lives and they have no way of getting help. And they're being literally forced to live in this small area that does allow sleeping on the ground and allow like tent cities and things like that. I mean, we haven't even touched about the Skid Row in Los Angeles. Anyway, I'm going to get in a tangent, but this episode really brings up points that are close to literally close to home (laughs) and things that are really disturbing patterns. And if a show like DS nine can see it back in 1996, when this, when this episode aired and here we are, 24 years later, with the issues only getting worse, it's scary for me to see, as well as having a pandemic on top of it, because people are losing their jobs and the wealth gap is growing more and more and more, and the the rich people are getting richer and the poor people are getting more poor. The middle class is shrinking. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I yeah yeah. So I I'm just worried about us. <laughs> yeah. Ashlyn, I'm glad you brought up the wealthy class because I found also the juxtaposition of Dax's experience versus Cisco and Bashir's experience to be very jarring and really well done because – Dax had the fortune of having a man pick her up and he called her a damsel in distress which made me very mad but and I she was Dax laying on the ground of all characters yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah she was laying on the ground in like a subway station area or like Muni station probably and so he picked her up was like I'll rescue you I'll be your savior like I'm so good and anyway so he's this rich guy we talked about and he invites her to this party the next night where she gets to dress up and she's essentially talking to these different people of the wealthy class and it is fascinating because Dax is someone who's lived through this time i mean not on earth probably because she's you know she's not she's a trill she's experienced this era from her past hosts and so it is good because she knows how to navigate herself better in the like cultural circumstances of the time but it's also really great to hear her talk back against what these rich people are saying about the sanctuary districts they when they talk about them they talk about them with scorn and with indifference essentially and it's awful to hear because that's honestly what probably a lot of people think about the homeless or about the Tenderloin or these different areas of homeless population. And so I think it was important that Dax was, like, fighting back against that and trying to question these people's ideas surrounding the sanctuary district. She's like, but why are they in there? But, like, where would they have gotten their jobs if they got laid off? How could they have gotten a new one quickly enough before they – ran out of credit chips and had to go to the Sanctuary District or whatever. And so, um, I mean, I also, also to, to be fair, someone in that group of wealth at the party, they did not even know that the Sanctuary sit, uh, District was still happening. And so yeah. I think that's important, too, that there's different perspectives on it. And Absolutely. I think that seems to be the prevalent opinion is that no one even really knew what was going on the out of sight out of mind mentality for the media yeah exactly one quick thing i do want to say that i also found to be very telling about this character who picks up dax is that he is admiring dax's trail spots and he's like those are very nice tattoos she's like thank you and he said i had a tribal maori tattoo on my arm but had to get it removed to get a job and i'm not trying to assume that he's not maori He looks fairly white to me. He looks like uh, someone who's not from New Zealand. And the Maori tribe are the native New Zealand tribe. And so I'm pretty sure he just culturally appropriated himself by getting that tattoo. And they're talking about he's like, oh, yes, I just took a trip to the South Island of New Zealand and it was beautiful and great. And so it's just interesting to see the disparity between these two cultures and these two parts of the episode. I don't know. I just found that to be. Very, very telling and very interesting. Yeah, well, and I thought it was really smart what the writers did about how they separated our two groups of the crew here. And and this is not said anywhere, but I think it's absolutely baked into the plot that... Dax is found by this wealthy guy, but she's also a white woman who is asleep in the Muni underground. And people are assuming that she's hurt or that she's sick or like something is wrong. Or she got mugged. Um, or yeah. she got mugged, exactly. But when the enforcers or whoever see Cisco and Bashir, two men of color sleeping on the ground, they assume the worst and take them to the sanctuary yep. district. And yep. I can't help but think. If that same man who picked up Cisco and Bashir had picked up Dax, he would have thought the same thing. I mean, I don't know. I don't think she would have been arrested. Yeah. And so I think that's also a, unfortunately like realistic. Mm-hmm. Oh god, realistic. Ashley, facts. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. It's a very important thing to state and something that was a little underhanded. Because I think Deep Space Nine does a really great job of not making anything in this show too heavy handed, even though an episode like this could clearly be thought of that way. They don't do it. You know, it's weirdly they avoid it. Like I feel like a lot of the original series sometimes has these episodes that are so heavy handed because they have to be for the time to make people listen. But I think they could be a little more subtle here with the important issues that they're discussing. So I'm really glad you brought that up, Ashlyn. Bashir was really one that was thrown out all these great quotes this episode. One that I thought was pretty apt. He said, the 21st century is not one of my strong points in history. It's too depressing. (laughs) Yeah, that would hit way too close to hope there. And I was like, oh, I right, was like, oh, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the Kira O'Brien section just to put some levity in this moment. Also, just the science behind this. First of all, O'Brien said at one point that the Heisenberg buffers were not working. And I was like, Heisenberg, like what are <laughs> I love that they're using that Save word my name. <laughs> instantly about a Breaking Bad. But anyway, so apparently they get what, six tries? To find Cisco, Dax, and Bashir. Okay. Okay. Let's jump into the technical parts of this episode. So, there's several times they cut away to go back to the Defiant because the Defiant is trying to figure out how the f did they go back in time. So, let me read this techno bible to you that I wrote down. This is literally what O'Brien says. He says that there are chroniton particles, once again, we also heard about those in the Children of Time. Brian says that there was a explosion of microscopic energy passing through the solar system. At the same time, that they were beaming down to Earth. And because the Defiant was shielded, there was an extra amount of chroniton particles, and that interfered. And that's what sent them back in time. So, obviously, this is straight nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) It always seems like the extra chroniton particles is what gets them. (laughs) Like, if there's too much, then they're in trouble. And something about this... explosion of a microscopic energy created like a temporal thing and that's what (laughs) happened and i have no idea how o'brien i mean just the technology alone of being able to beam down to the past from the present is unbelievable and they should be figuring out ways of saving this so they can do it forever because what a great way to time travel you just beam down to wherever you want to go yeah and your atoms are somehow not scattered throughout space and time don't get it. do one it. bit. But the <laughs> point is that the writers wanted a lighter part of this episode. They wanted the B-plot to be, well, how is the crew going to get home? O'Brien and Kira can work on it. And so, yeah, they have these really funny scenes of them beaming down. I think it's first to like the 20s and they hear a lot of like jazz and swing music and then to the 70s and then they go too far in the future. Yeah, okay. And also during this time, first of all, they beam out directly in front of people. I mean, that can't be helps because they're beam out time. They get one minute in each timeline. But it's kind of hilarious because they're beaming out right in front of these hippie type looking people. and They just throw up the peace sign. And so I bet they were just like, whoa, we had a bad trip. (laughs) Like, where did those people go? It's heavily implied that the people in the van were high on some kind of drug. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) And so it kind of worked that they beamed out in front of him because they were tripping anyway, (laughs) which I thought was hilarious. I'm like, wow, I'm so glad they got six tries. But it is very telling that when they're matching up to this episode, they go too far in the future, like you said, Ashlyn, and they go to 2048. O'Brien said, quote, that was more rough than Earth's rough patches. I'm sorry i'm sorry it was more rough than slavery it was more rough than england's sun never sets on the empire colonization colonization wiping out all the (laughs) native tribes with the spanish flu we are here to assume because that was around the time where Whoops, Cisco and Bashir accidentally get into a fight that end up getting Gabriel Bell killed. So we assume that that's around the B-mount time where there is no Bell riot and things continue to decline and get worse and worse and worse. But that sounds awful! Like, O'Brien's like, something clearly went wrong because this place is worse than before <laughs> Well, this episode i mean we both talked about how amazing it is but the time travel aspect just does not make any sense at all and so i'm forgiving it i said this on the last episode but for these iconic ones we have to give a little bit of grace for because- sure so this is the most confusing thing. Well, no, not the most confusing. There's a lot of confusing things for me. But I'm wondering, because if the future has changed for them and, like, there's no Federation and everything, and that apparently happened when Gabriel Bell, the real one, was stabbed in the fight. But at this time, Sisko and Bashir would have already saved the hostages because time just goes on and would have been exactly the same, and they should have never noticed that anything was different you know and so it's only for the drama of the episode that there's no resolution in the future but I mean do you know what I'm saying I totally do there's no way that their future was different there's no way yeah, you just made that more confusing to me, but that's okay. fine. <laughs> well, buckle up, buggeroo, because there's another part I thought was so funny and just amazing. Because at the end of this episode, I couldn't believe this. Okay, so Cisco, Bashir, and Dax have not talked one second to each other about how they're getting back to the Defiant. Nothing. I'm correct about that, right? You, yeah. yeah. Okay, there's no conversation at all. The only conversation happening is between O'Brien and Kira on the Defiant. And Odo's there, too. Everyone on Mm. the Defiant is trying to figure it out. But there is literally a line that Cisco says, well, at some point, we're going to have to find Dax and get to the beam-out point so the Defiant can pick us up. Okay, they must have just meant the place where they beamed in. But how would they know that the Defiant was going to come and beam them up? How would they know that the Defiant was able to come and find them? And would the Defiant fly back? They're, I guess, really trusting their co-workers (laughs) to be like, they're Starfleet officers. They're going to figure out how to get his back. It'll be fine. (laughs) I thought that was so funny. And it's just because... The writers spent all of their time writing this amazing piece about social justice <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> forgot about the technology. <laughs> yeah, there's even one point two, like you said, like, why would it be different? I guess it would have for that time where Starfleet doesn't exist anymore because of the Bell Riots didn't happen. Again, I guess it's they're trying to pull a city on the edge of forever. They do this a lot where, like, something bad happens in the past and then Starfleet's just gone. <laughs> like, no iteration of it or anything. But it works in City because it's a the Guardian is the transition between the past and the future. And so right. the fact that they're just seeing a view screen of history. And so whatever the results happen, they're just on the planet chilling. Yeah. but. There's nothing like that for the Defiant. With the Guardian, it's more explained. The Defiant is actively experiencing normal time. Yeah. <laughs> should be. Also, Dax, Sisko, and Bashir never talk about how they traveled in time. There's not even a sentence about any kind of theory. Like when Cisco and Bashir are waiting for three hours to be processed in the Sanctuary District, they're not like, oh, by the way, how did we travel back? <laughs> <laughs> they're kind of just like well we're in some crazy effing situations so many days in our lives let's just roll with this we don't have time i love <laughs> it i love it i mean i guess at that point you're just in starfleet you're like anything could happen we have to be prepared and our crewmates will come get us yeah exactly This is completely justifiable, the fact that Sisko has to take the place of Gabriel Bell in the history books because he's literally dead and he's like, we have to restore this timeline, we have to make sure that the Bell riots happen, which, of course, again, is Sisko being incredible and putting a lot of undue pressure and stress on himself, but also because he has to save the world. (laughs) This happens to Benjamin Sisko, like, on a daily. And so I find that to be just, of course, crazy high stakes and bananas that temporal investigations didn't come and ask them about this at all and like he did say oh no there's this picture of me at the end it's gabriel bell and julian's like at least it's a good picture and he does say like oh temporal investigations is going to be on my butt about it or something like that so i am glad that they had a little reference to that but i was like yeah you bet they are (laughs) like you impersonated a literal hero in history in a focal point of change But at least you did it right, and at least everything happened okay. I cannot believe that none of those hostages died, honestly, like with the chaos of the situation. I think similarly to how Kirk handles time travel, Cisco knew that this is a point in time that changes everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's lucky that Cisco is as much of a historian as Picard is. Like, all these captains really have good knowledge of history, which I think is really great. I love history myself, so I admired it. But I think Cisco knew even if we get some things wrong, what matters is that these hostages survive and that change happens. I was a little disappointed because Webb, I think is his name. This is a character that they meet in the Sanctuary District. His son is injured, and Bashir helps him get better. And they become partners in trying to help change how the district is run. And Webb is there as much as Cisco, And in fact, he was the brains behind the whole idea that they have to have a change. Totally, And he is totally not mentioned in history at all. And yet he dies. Mm-hmm. in the riot and so i was kind of hoping that even though bell dies maybe the only thing that would have changed is they called it the web riots that's or what something. i thought too yeah but no no screw web <laughs> <laughs> we gotta yeah. have that picture of cisco as Gabriel bell <laughs> Well, and I think it also is sort of a testament to how there's so many key players in changing history and there's so many names and faces that don't get recognized by history and are swept up in time and forgotten. And so I think that's maybe what they were going for, at least what I took away from it. I agree. I agree with you, Rena, But yeah, rest in peace, Webb. <laughs> yeah. What a fantastic episode. If you guys haven't seen this recently, definitely go back and watch it. And then maybe think about calling your senders, <laughs> <and> asking <laughs> about what they're doing about the homeless population and just about people in general. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So let's jump to an episode that is a lot of fun. I love this one. This is Little Green Men. We briefly talked about it in our family series because there is a lot of Ferengi family moments in this Mm -hmm. one. But in this one, obviously, we're going to be focusing on the time travel. So will you take it away, Rihanna? Will you tell us about this ship that Quark got from his cousin? (laughs) Oh, Cousin Gala. What a crazy man. He's yes. always out here wilding. Yeah. <laughs> so, first of all, I think it's really great that Nog got a little travel book from Earth, and it's all past, present. He gives him some information. He got it as a going-away present from Bashir and O'Brien, because he's about to head to Starfleet Academy. And he happens to stumble across the Bell Riots and sees the picture of Sisko. And he's like, doesn't this look exactly like Captain Cisco?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Quark goes, oh, all humans look alike. <laughs> but anyway, so I thought that was a really cool connection and a fun little throwback. And I think a lovely foreshadowing to, hey, this is going to be another time travel episode. Get ready. Because then a couple minutes later, because Quark is illegally smuggling chemo and because Cousin Gala is actually not great. And he gave him a ship that literally is unable to drop out of warp. After it goes into warp? That is very dangerous. And it'll I, tear the ship apart. Yeah, I love Rom's delivery of that when he's telling Warp what's going to happen. He's like, we're going to burn up to bits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're going to be spread across the galaxy. Yeah. 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 But turns out, Rom's got the lobes for engineering, you know, so he oh, knows yeah. what to do. And he uses the chemosite. Somehow, another technobabble moment, where he uses the chemocyte to help them to try to stop this warp disaster from happening. But instead, it sends them back in time to 1947. Do you have any science-y explanations as to how this happened besides the chemocyte? Nope. It's all about the (laughs) chemosite. Okay, cool. What I super enjoyed about this episode, it reminded me a lot of the original series episodes that we talked about in time travel, especially Return to Tomorrow, because it was similarly talking about, oh, won't you just write it off as a weather balloon? There's UFO sightings all the time. And of course they utilized this, in the episode, where at the end they said the Fringy ship was a weather balloon and all of that, but I did find it to be really interesting that a lot of the episode was from the people's in the past perspective. So we got to see the nurse and her husband talking through the one-way mirror thing and listening to them talking frengi Fringinar. Yeah, but that's the name of the home world. Would it be the name of the language, too? Franginese? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe Franginese. <laughs> yeah, who who knows? But anyway, we get to hear their perspective of who they think these quote-unquote Martians are and what their intentions are for Earth. Of course, all of the military guys think that they're here to dominate and take over the world, and all the scientists are here to think that they're exploring. And so it's just funny to see the two of their perspectives. I really enjoyed this part of the episode, and when they're all pounding their heads to try to get their universal translators to be working, and the humans think that that's like a greeting, and so they start doing it. And yeah, I just think this is a really clever episode that captures sort of the essence of confusion that both parties are feeling before they get the universal translators back online. Yeah, this is a great one. I did definitely get tomorrow's Yesterday or Return to Tomorrow yeah. or whatever <laughs> in the episode. <laughs> There's so many similar episode names in the original series. But yeah. the one where the pilot gets beamed up onto the Enterprise that we just talked about a couple episodes ago, mm-hmm. I was really thinking about that. The poor people from the future really get captured by the American military a lot. I was dying in this episode. It was a great break from some of the more serious moments that DS9 has. I thought it was funny and super unrealistic how the couple here, who is supposed to be advocating for the Ferengis and trying to keep them safe, and they're stopping the military from hurting them and dissecting them or killing them. But yet they have this scene where they're talking to each other. And the guy says, it's so funny. We just made the most amazing discovery in all of history and all I could think about is what you'll look like in your wedding dress and I'm Ugh. like puke I mean Larsch. I'm afraid but like are you serious you are not Flipping your lid right now over these literal aliens? Come on. I thought that was so funny. And just I thought that part was especially reminiscent of the original series, because a lot of the time in these time travel episodes, we have a female who's really empathetic to the situation, to the time travelers in question. They are the ones who end up saving them or helping them. I mean, this is literally Voyage Home. This is the girl in Assignment yeah. Earth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I thought that trope just continuing was great. All of the moments between, especially Quark and the main commander guy, were oh just my God. so funny. Once the Universal Translators are fixed, Quark is talking about how he's going to take over the world. And using oh. new technology to these Earthlings of the past, essentially, to sell them weapons. <laughs> and it makes sense why the temporal agency is so strict with time travel, because people like Quark could easily exploit Earth. I mean, they say it so many times, but the. People of 1947, compared to Starfleet in the 24th century, are primitive and violent and Savages. Yeah. (laughs) Calling them savages, I think. Yeah. Nog does. Also, I love the fact that Odo was a stowaway in this episode. I think it adds an element of humor, which is so perfect, because of course Odo followed them. This is Odo we're talking about. He is the most suspicious of Quark to ever suspicious of Quark. (laughs) He is just constantly tailing him constantly turning into bags to stow away and see what quirk's up to he knew he was shipping the chemo site. and so i think it's hilarious that odo is a dog in this part and then also bizarre that no one was watching odo transform into a human from the dog form no one was out there watching they don't have cameras i mean i guess they're in the 40s but like still you're like a base Where are your cameras? Where are your surveillance? How did they not know that Odo was this dog? I don't know. It's just bizarre, but hilarious that Odo is literally pursuing Quark in his illegal endeavors into the past. And luckily he was there because he was a good help in getting them out of this sticky situation and also sort of putting a leash on Quark and saying, no, you can't sell futuristic weapons to these humans. They will annihilate each other in like a year or less. So, yeah. in the dynamic of the family, no one is gonna be able to stop Quark from no. achieving his dreams. And so thank God Odo was there to have, be the voice of reason and say, Quark, you literally, you're gonna get yourself killed. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Nog really does try, though, which is funny because he plays right into what the military humans think of them. He says, oh, we're actually here for galactic domination, and there's 9,000 more ships coming your way, and they're all armed to the teeth or whatever. And, of course, Rom's in the background just like, (laughs) moogie. So, you know, it's all chaos it's not going to help their situation to say that we're coming to take over your planet. Nug. Nah, like that's not, you know, so I am glad that Odo was here and that the scientists did the right thing. And, were prepared to let them go and let them return back to their time. Because I love that the scientists are sort of the people with all of the Starfleet values. Like that's what we assume in Star Trek all the time is if you see a scientist, either they're going to be a part of Starfleet or they're Starfleet leaning, you know, or at least they have more empathy for that. But what I thought was absolutely insane was that it happened to be a testing of a atom bomb happening just around that time where they could use a big nuclear explosion. Such good timing (laughs) that they Could use that, and thank God, get back. Well, first of all, I like that, Rihanna. Your brain separates people versus potential Starfleet and not potential Starfleet. (laughs) (laughs) I just walked down the street, being like, "Ooh, that person has Starfleet material." You're like, that person could be definitely an ensign. And I also love a quote that Quark says at the end of this episode. He says, just remember, under that placid Federation veneer, humans are still a bunch of violent savages. (laughs) Quark especially makes a lot of remarks about humans when he hears the fact that they have been uh, radiating their planet with atom bombs and that they're killing themselves with cigarettes and everything. He's like, oh, wow, if they're selling poison at stores, and they're buying poison, these humans will buy anything. Yeah, (laughs) of course. With the financial opportunity. That's just who we are. We love poison. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, let's shift to the grand finale, the talking piece of the episode, Trials and Tribulations. All about the Tribbles, Ashlyn. So now we are back to an episode with a Time Orb again, and this is where all of our theories probably go out the window, because this random guy who was genetically altered to not look like a Klingon, decided to go back in the past to try to kill Kirk and use the time orb to do it. So that's kind of (laughs) crazy. Period. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it's crazy that the Cardassians are just giving up their time orb that they have and giving it to the Bajorans. And so, I mean, yeah, this is like a peace offering because the Bajorans are trying to collect all the orbs that was taken from them during the occupation. But I wonder, this is my own fanfiction, that maybe the Time Orb didn't work for the Cardassians because the mm. Prophets didn't want to activate it for them. But it works for... Random the, Klingon. For random Klingon spy? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Just out of character for the Cardassians to be that nice. I adore the beginning of this episode it's something we talked about when we were doing our original series time travel episode that we get to finally see temporal investigations come and talk to Cisco and this is how we learn about the episode he's telling us the story apparently Kirk has 17 temporal violations on his record I'm like, yeah, that tracks. I'm kind of sad that we didn't get to see all 17. But if it were probably a five-year mission, we would have if TOS would have continued. So many violations. It definitely all wasn't during the five-year mission because we know he does it at least once in the movie era. Yeah. But that's a lot of violations. <laughs> so many, Kirk. And it's hilarious to see how done these temporal investigation agents are. They are so tired of people going back in time and being reckless and one of the men says at one point he's like how did you get back in time please tell me it wasn't predestined paradox. (laughs) Yeah exactly which is something that they talk about later is Bashir's worried that he's going to create a predestined paradox because he thinks that this random crewman on the original Enterprise he wants to bang is his great great grandma or something and so he's worried he's creating a predestined paradox but yeah so it's really funny that The temporal investigation guys are like, oh, my God, was this a time loop? Because we hate those. (laughs) And then when Cisco explains, no, turns out we ended up right under the Enterprise. And he's like, which one? Be specific. There were six. I just thought this comedic timing was really great for this episode because it does show how hardworking these temporal investigation agents are and how much BS they have to deal with. Cisco said, oh, but don't worry. Nothing was affected in our timeline. Nothing seemed to change. And the temporal investigation guy is like, how would you have known that if you changed the timeline? (laughs) He's like, hello, think about it. He's like, that's what everyone says. You know, so it's just funny to see their perspective. Yeah, I love how resigned they are. And I guess I kind of expected them to be like the people who run the agency, but they're not. They're just guys who work there so that tells me just how many violations are taking place that this is not the biggest news of all time that Cisco went and hung out with Kirk that's another day day. a day in the life of a time agent you know (laughs) totally The story unfolds that the Klingon spy puts a bomb in a Tribble, which is the (laughs) the best line ever. Cisco says, they put a bomb in a Tribble, (laughs) which is amazing. (laughs) What is so charming about this episode, obviously, is the fact that they just decided to incorporate it so much with the Trouble with Tribbles episode. I think that the way that they are able to integrate the two episodes is really cool. Mm -hmm. And I know it's probably done with green screen work, But it looks really realistic when you see Dax and Cisco looking at Kirk and Spock, for example, and talking about them. Or when you see the lineup of all the people who started the fight at the bar and Kirk looks like he's talking right to O'Brien. So I just want to give a little shout out to the effects in this episode are really cool and to the writers, because this is just a fantastic way to do a time travel episode. And I love it because we get to see our favorite characters on New Space Nine be total fan girls over all our favorite characters in the original series, and it's it's beautiful. I love it. <laughs> I agree. And it also is such a love letter to TOS, to the fans. It's a great reminder of how fantastic The Trouble with Tribbles was as an episode. And it's honoring that by continuing its Tribble legacy. And I love that. It maintains the similar humor and style of the original series, not only in the looks, but in the music and the pacing and the comedy I think is very original series and they did it so well it makes me so happy like that they had an ode to that and also the fact that we finally get somewhat of a retconned explanation of why the Klingons look the way they do from Worf because that has probably been a question going through message boards since message boards exist (laughs) (laughs) and so I think it's funny that Worf essentially says this is a dark time in their past and they don't talk about it to outsiders, which reminded me a lot of Pon Far, actually. It's a very well-kept secret <laughs> as to why they don't have forehead ridges and why the Klingons look so different. Still didn't really get an explanation, but at least it was acknowledged. <laughs> I'm sure there's a novel out there, like a Star Trek novel, that talks all about it. The history I enjoyed also was hearing Worf talk about the tribal Wars, where they had to go to the tribal homeworld and destroy <laughs> the Armada. <laughs> Say, obliterated the tribbles. The tribbles are the Klingons' greatest nemesis. <laughs> please, please, Lower Decks, do an episode about this. Oh, <laughs> like, I would watch a movie about this. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I find overall that all of them are fairly good at being undercover, for the most part. Sisko, of course, at the end has his gotta shake Kirk's hand moment. Essentially, gotta go meet Kirk and tell him it was an honor to serve on his ship, which I love that one of the temporal guys is like, yeah, I would have done that too if I had the chance to meet Kirk. And I'm like, same. Literally, I think that most people would be like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I did find it funny that O'Brien did not know who Scotty was. It doesn't really track for me because I I would assume that Scotty is a legend in the engineering community and for Starfleet engineers. I mean, he created Transwarp Beaming. He's the original miracle worker. (laughs) Yeah, he's where all the other stressed out engineers get their (laughs) motivation. And so I just thought it was hilarious that first, O'Brien doesn't know who Kirk is or what he looks like, and he doesn't know who Scotty is. It's just so funny. And I also love that O'Brien's claim to fame is that he lied to Kirk in the lineup. (laughs) I love that too. I also love that we find. Find out because Dax, of course, she has lived through this time as well, and mm-hmm. she's really nostalgic for these times, for like the classic design of classic the tricorder, third century design, yeah. <laughs> She's like us. She's like all the Star Trek fans. <laughs> Literally. Them getting ready in their outfits made me feel like I was about to go to a Star Trek convention. It was exactly. hilarious. They all had the 70s hair. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. And I love that we find out that Dax, one of her previous hosts, had a love affair with McCoy. Ashlyn, are you jealous? I am jealous. I feel like I wish I was the daughter of that union. <laughs> At Old Miss. She's like Googling her own trail brain. And she's like, McCoy, McCoy, sounds familiar. And then she's like, oh, "Oh." (laughs) McCoy, hands of a surgeon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's this running joke, something that probably a lot of Star Trek fans know, if you know the episode Trouble with Tribbles, that when Kirk is standing in that pile of Tribbles and they keep falling down, the -the behind-the-scenes explanation is the fact that someone was up there throwing Tribbles at William Shatner. And that's why he keeps looking up and all annoyed, and he says, can someone please shut that door? And so I love that. Then they took it further and took a behind-the-scenes moment and made it a canon part of Deep Space Nine that the fact that they're looking for the right Tribble and throwing the others that aren't the bomb down onto Kirk so funny I thought that was brilliant Star Trek plus Star Trek equals Star Trek Rihanna (laughs) (laughs) literally (laughs) Yeah, that's so funny. I remember reading about that in one of William Shatner's books about making the show, and that's why he looks up. And this is why it adds to the drama so well in this episode, because when Kirk looks up into the door, you think, is he going to see Dax and Cisco? Right. You know, get that fear, even though obviously that won't happen. But sure. The details put in this episode, just to fit everything together, just works so well. Well, of course, at the very end, somehow Triples got aboard the Defiant and brought them back to Deep Space Nine because now... I love that the temporal guys didn't see this. They must have just gone to the airlock without going into the replimat or anything. But they literally are stuffed full of tribbles in Quark's bar, and Quark's got the tribble on the head, which is very reminiscent of the end of Trouble with Tribbles, with the barman who's got the tribble on his head. So I really liked that callback to it. It was so fun. And also... We don't know what they did to them. Maybe they beamed them into another Klingon ship just to annoy the Klingons. No, not really, because they're friends with Klingons now. But (laughs) where did they put them? We don't know, but they got rid of them somehow. I mean, after seeing a lot of different Tribble episodes, I might be team beam the Tribbles into space. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know Worf was. You know Worf was out there, like, stunning all of them and throwing them out the airlock. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I love this. And I thought it was interesting that they decided to take the villain, quote unquote, from Trouble with Tribbles, the, ac- the Klingon spy, and I almost said activate a Klingon spy. I'm thinking about oh. Ash Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> well, <that's> anyway, right. <laughs> I like that they took him and they recasted him as an older person in this episode. Yeah, it's just, again, so creative, so wonderful. I'm so happy we got to watch it for this podcast today. Well, Rihanna, thank you so much for talking with me. Once again, I just love how each podcast for each series is so different because of the nature of these episodes. So it's just great to do a deep dive. And I am very curious to see what episodes we come up with for Voyager next week, because that's going to be a very different conversation. Oh, you betcha. I cannot wait, Ashlyn, and I want to wish all of you at home or in your cars or wherever you're at listening right now a great week. We can't wait to do Voyager next week for time travel, so thank you all for tuning in. I also just want to say Happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers out there no matter if you are near or far to them. And a special shout out to our mom, our Moogie, because she is also just now watching Voyager for the first time. So I just hope you all send her your love because Voyager is amazing. And I hope she thinks so too. (laughs) So Rihanna, thank you. And I can't wait to talk to you next week. Thank you, Ashlyn. Thank you for listening to the Dura Sisters podcast. Please tune in next week for the fourth episode of our time travel series, where Ashlyn and Rihanna will discuss the time travel episodes in Star Trek Voyager. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and check to see our suggested watch list for our upcoming episodes. Also take a moment to check out our content on Tumblr and TikTok. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. By donating any amount per month, you can become a monthly patron and unlock our exclusive reviews of Lower Decks, the animated series, and our Star Trek trivia. You can find all of this and more at patreon.com slash the Duras Sisters podcast. If you would like to contact us for any reason, please do so at the Duras Sisters podcast at gmail.com. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith. And our outro, "Warp's Revenge, is by Arillo Voltaire. What do you call a Cardassian on a sailing ship? A seagull.